pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we are talking about structured teaching, and it's actually the last show in the Autism Podcast series. And so this show is really, really specialized in that it does not apply to all kids with autism, but it is such a good starting point for lots of children who are having difficulty learning how to play with traditional toys. And that affects some of our little friends with autism. So let's go ahead and start this show by looking at the differences that kids with autism or markers or signs of autism have which really affect their ability to learn how to play with toys. And so I talked about this a lot back in show 405 when we were addressing play skills initially. So this is what you're going to do if that stuff doesn't work, if those strategies are ineffective. We're going to back up to this point. And so let's talk about the kids who are really, really affected and who uh, for whom structured teaching might be a really, really good option. So these are kids who have difficulty with social interaction. And again, we're not going to go over all of these in detail because we did that back in show 405. So we're just going to talk about this kind of as a list. So if you have a kid with difficulty with social interaction who has a micro short attention span, you know those kids, they stay with you for 10 seconds and then they are out of there. And you know, as one dad uh, just sent me a comment on YouTube, he said, I feel like that's why my kid isn't talking. And he's exactly right. And that's also why a kid may not have acquired other skills that lead to talking like these foundational play skills. So a micro short attention span can affect all of this, including learning how to play with toys. Uh, Delayed cognitive skills, about 30% of kids with autism also have cognitive delays, which again affects how they learn, how they plan, how they remember, and that can certainly affect learning how to play with toys. Kids who have a lack of flexibility during play, and this is one of the markers for autism, just that they prefer things to be very, very structured. They might line up toys instead of really playing with them. They get upset when someone interjects a new idea or if someone wants to play with their toy. So that lack of flexibility is often a concern for parents and for therapists when children aren't playing with toys. And and that certainly is something that can affect a child's ability to learn how to play. Sensory processing and regulation differences. So that means what a kid does with all this incoming information How does he process it coming in? The sounds he hears, the sights he sees, the things he can touch and feel, um, the way his body, again, processes all that incoming information. Kids with autism and kids with developmental differences in general may have some regulation issues in that it's hard for them to calm down. It's hard for them to sit still. If they were here right now with me with these bright lights blaring in my face, that might be a problem for them. Really sitting and learning how to play with a toy because that's just too bothersome. So again, these things can certainly affect how a kid learns how to play. Certainly weaker imitation skills, meaning that, and we've talked about this a lot throughout the Autism Podcast series, uh, kids with autism don't necessarily have that inner drive to watch you and then do what you do. And so again, that's a difference, a neurological difference and a learning difference that these kids have. So that certainly makes learning how to play with toys more difficult because they don't have that 
natural instinct that we see in children with typically more typically developing skills to really sit and watch and then try to copy that. Lots of times they're doing self-stimulatory activities. And what does that mean? That means things that they do for their own benefit, the things that give them that internal buzz. And kids with typically developing skills do that. I mean, frankly, we all do that, even as adults. But certainly this can affect a kid's ability to learn how to play with toys because he, like we said before, spends his time lining up toys or organizing toys or maybe even exploring toys. Or if he likes a certain visual property of the toy, he might sit and just open and close a door on a toy over and over. Or if there's a button, he might repetitively push that button. He might love the sound that the toy makes or he might love the lights that he sees with the toy. And so that can really keep his play skills from progressing too because he gets stuck in that self-stimulatory pattern. And then certainly the auditory and language processing delays and differences that kids with autism have. Kids with autism learn language differently and so that when we're trying to teach them things that difference that that makes it harder for them to learn how to play with toys too because they're not always listening to your instructions. They don't process verbal information uh, like kids with typically developing systems do. They're not always drawn to that. Again, they, they have their their focus may be directed somewhere else. And because of that, they don't learn how to understand what words mean sometimes as well as kids with typically developing language. Now, some kids with autism don't have difficulty with receptive language. They don't have difficulty learning what words mean and really linking that meaning. And, and so they don't have difficulty learning how to follow directions. But you can see when a kid has difficulty learning how to do what you say when you're giving him instructions with a toy, you know, push this. Or, or put put the farmer in the tractor. If he doesn't understand those words, he's even more lost. And so those kids certainly uh, have difficulty learning how to play with toys. And then the last difference noted in young children with autism that make learning to play with toys uh, difficult would be a lower frustration tolerance, meaning that with trial and error, like all kids and we all throughout our entire lifespan, we learn through trial and error. We see something doesn't work, so let me try this. Oh, that doesn't work, let's try this. Oh, that doesn't work either, let me try this. Kids with autism, like that lack of flexibility, they also have a low frustration tolerance. So they just get set off more easily. They don't have the ability to kind of stick with it and to keep going. And again, autism is a spectrum, so you won't see this in its most pure raw form with every kid with autism. There are some kids with autism, again, that are going to have more laid back personalities than other kids with autism. And so you may not see this frustration tolerance with every kid. And if you don't, that's fantastic. And don't think, well, my kid doesn't have that frustration tolerance. So he might have all those other markers for autism, but he doesn't have this one thing. So that's why he's not really on the spectrum. That's not it either. And don't get caught up in that. You can go back and listen to that show 401, explain autism to parents for the official diagnostic criteria where we talk about which things or which characteristics are, are required in order for a child to get an autism diagnosis and which ones aren't. And so again, because it's a spectrum, sometimes parents and even therapists will say, well, he doesn't have that. So that means he's not really on the spectrum. And a lot of times that's not true. So don't let yourself don't talk yourself out of that diagnosis, even though as a parent, you so sometimes have such a hard time dealing with that. Uh, and that's understandable too. I'm just saying don't get caught up in having to have every one of these little things before you 
really, really, really um, accept that diagnosis or that possibility. All right, so those were the differences noted in kids with autism that make learning how to play with toys difficult. And so what do we do about that? Well, structured teaching is a really wonderful, wonderful treatment approach that if you haven't tried this as a therapist or if you don't know about it as a parent, I want to take this show uh, to introduce these strategies to you. And you will probably have to do some additional reading or studying or researching on your own to be able to implement some of these things. But today I really want to get you started with uh, knowing when it's appropriate to think about some of these things as a treatment modality for kids, uh, which kids are going to do better with it, how to tweak it, and the different options out there. So let's just start by talking about what structured teaching is. Structured teaching is based on the TEACH method designed uh, at the University of North Carolina, and TEACH means, and let me just read it so I don't mess it up, Treatment and Education of Autistic and Communication-Related Handicapped Children. And it was developed, I believe, in the 70s, so it's been a long, uh, around for a long while. It's actually one of the evidence-based practice uh, strategies or treatment approaches for autism because it's so backed by research. And when this is an appropriate method for a kid, it really, really works. So again, as a professional who works with young children with learning differences and certainly with autism, this is something that you need to know about. Now you can use structured teaching as your whole program or you can use it as a part of a program. Sometimes preschool classrooms, especially for kids with autism, are really set up with a structured teaching approach to teach everything all day. So sometimes when you do searches about teach, and again, it's T-E-A-C-C-H, those initials, or structured teaching, you'll actually see lots of activities that are classroom-based and have lots of literacy components and things that are just, or math, and just higher level for Uh, the developmental phase that we're talking about here with toddlers and preschoolers who aren't yet talking. And so know that this can just be the whole entire approach and then everything is going to fit into this structured teaching or teach model. Or you can use it like I use it, which is just a bridge in the beginning to help children really, really learn how to learn. And so the things that I like about teach and like about structured teaching are that we're going to teach kids to really how to maintain attention to task, how to participate with you during a task, meaning they're not going to get up and run away. They're going to stay with you and they're going to stay with it through completion. And those learning how to learn skills are so important, especially for any kid with autism, especially right at the beginning. And this works so well, particularly for kids who aren't playing with toys like we talked about. And so for me, uh, teach and structure teaching are really a bridge to that, to really get those early play skills going. Now, we are not going to use this approach with every kid with autism. There are going to be some kids who are beyond this. And if you have a kid who is already playing with toys, don't worry about this. This is going to be one of those those things that you just pass by that you know you're not going to need it. But like I said, when it when a kid really, really needs it, it works. So let's talk about now uh, the kids that it's especially useful for. So when do we use this? It's when a kid outright rejects toys or he has a take it or leave it attitude about toys. So if you're a therapist, you might have tried to show him a lot of different things during therapy and he might just explore. He might just be up and about <laughs> the room the whole session rather than sitting down with you and he can't really find anything that interests him or his interests are so focused with just 
he only likes Thomas the Train, or he only likes Paw Patrol, or he only likes balls. When we have kids that are like that, we think, oh, we've got to have another way to introduce these other kinds of more familiar toys. And again, why are we talking about that? Why is this important? Play is such an important prerequisite skill for language learning because it's how all kids learn. <laughs> and it's we know that it works because typically developing kids demonstrate this all day, every day. And when a kid doesn't play with toys, he's going to miss lots of opportunities to learn everything, including language. And he also misses lots of opportunities for peer interaction. So it's that's why this is so important for, for kids. And that's why when, as a speech pathologist, you may have parents that say, why are you worried about play? I just wanted to talk. And so you've really got to explain that, that playing with toys is a pre-linguistic skill, that playing with toys is something that we want to see all kids do, that he misses lots of those opportunities to learn language because you don't get an opportunity to explain things to him and show him things. And then certainly that's going to impact his experiences when he starts preschool and when he starts to make little friends. He won't have the experience that he needs with play to be successful. And sometimes kids look like they don't like toys when it's really not that. They don't understand how to play with toys. So when we do structured teaching and when we teach play in this very organized manner, and again, let me back up and say structured teaching, what does it consist of? It's highly structured uh, activities that have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They It's repetitive, so kids do maybe, they put five or six things in a container and then that task is over. It really relies on fine motor components, things they do with their hands, and then visual components, so things that they see rather than things that they hear. And so that's when we know, too, that structure teaching is a really good approach to try for a kid when he has really strong visual skills but weak auditory skills. And you might think of that, again, as not listening or a purposeful choice to avoid uh, when, when someone is trying to tell him something or interact with him with words, and it might look like that's a behavioral thing, but a lot of times that's not it. They just don't understand language. They don't have enough experience listening to have linked meaning with the words yet. And so when we see a kid like that, that you think, oh, if I could just get, get some of these skills poured into you, you're going to be able to play with these toys better, and when you play with these toys better, this is going to be an easier way and another avenue for me to teach you language and teach you what words mean and teach you how to participate and teach you how to pay attention, like we talked about before, uh, for those kids who have micro short attention spans, that they are just with you and then they are out of there. And so, th again, this is another really, really great way. And this is when we know teach is uh, a good avenue for us to try. So when a kid outright rejects toys, when they have good visual processing skills. They like visual information. These are the kids that like screens too. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of another indicator. And then uh, another thing would be is if you've tried to improve play skills with no success. So we talked about before uh, my podcast number 405, which talked about targeting play skills. And we're going to talk about some of that here, but go back and listen to that show, which will really, really, uh, if you haven't tried some of those things, those might be easier things. Structured teaching is when we know, oh, this is tough. This kid has some, has some severe limitations here that are preventing him from being able to play with toys. It's not that he just doesn't like toys. We need some skills. We've got to be able to teach him some things. And we need to use his strengths there, his, his visual strengths, his attraction to, to uh, uh, very, very repetitive structured activities where he can see what he's doing. He understands the toy and he understands the game. And so again, those are 
the kids that do best with structured teaching. Uh, another uh, indicator here is when a kid's play is repetitive and non-functional. So we talked about that with the differences in kids with autism, how uh, their play skills are or their underlying skills and how that results in not being able to learn to play like other uh, babies and toddlers and preschoolers. And so when we see that a kid, again, is uh, lining up toys or hoarding toys or spinning everything rather than learning how to play, we know, oh, this might be a kid who would respond well to structured teaching. And then lastly, when kids have that sh super short attention span, we know that we've got to make it easier. We've got to give them simpler things that are that they can complete more quickly before we lose them, and we really build on that. And we use their learning strengths and the, their, their predispositions. We use that in structured teaching and know that we're uh, going to, again, be able to build on those skills and give them some a better foundation to be able to play with traditional toys. And again, why are we doing that? is to support that language development and the peer interaction, which uh, we focus on too in, when we're getting kids ready to go to preschool or ready to participate in uh, childcare or group learning activities. All right, so we talked about structured teaching. What it is, is these super simple short tasks, and that's a word that you'll see in the literature if you do a professional literature review. Uh, Google Scholar, something like that. That's when you read when you read any uh, research article about structured teaching or teach. They call our little games tasks. I usually call them games or toys or whatever. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Some of the terminology I, I don't always use uh, or stick to as closely as the teach people recommend because I found that it works just a little bit differently in the settings that we're in with home visits and then primarily toddlers. Almost all activities with structured teaching uh, begin with some aspect of put it in or put it on or take it off. And again, why would this be so emphasized in uh, a structured teaching approach is because that's what the early skills are when you think about traditional toys. If you think about the early toys that you present to children, it's, it, it always involves some version of either push the button or put it in or take it out. And so those are the skills that we're really building when we're using structured teaching. And again, we're using that component of how kids with autism crave things that are familiar and crave things that are structured and predictable. And so that's why this kind of play is really, really effective too. All right, so let's talk about uh, well, let me mention this before we move on and talk about the tweaks. Before I tell you what the tweaks are that I do for structured teaching, it might be helpful to review <laughs> what the teach people really recommend. And they are pretty structured in how they present uh, tasks. And I, again, I'm not going to do a lot of teaching their material today. You can go back and look at that. And it's also uh, presented in the chapter on structured teaching uh, in my treatment manual, the Autism Workbook, Developing Speech Therapy Treatment Plans for Toddlers and Preschoolers with ASD, you can get the full explanation here or just do some searches with structured teaching or teach, T-E-A-C-C-H, and look at their recommendations for that. They usually use a table and chairs. They usually have five or six 
activities or tasks that they're presenting and you work through that. They have a beginning object that you're going to use as your to signal work time. And again, I don't say work with kids even when I'm doing teach because so many of our little guys have gotten such a bad connotation anyway And I with that word. And I understand that the, the teach people, uh, their intent was to teach kids, okay, we've got to get our work done and then we can get up and go play. I like to think about this with toddlers, kids in this earliest developmental phases. It's all play. And so that's one of the modifications that I make. Another thing that they talk about is, again, uh, setting up your, your environment, which we're going to talk a lot about, how that can really, really help a kid with his participation and completion with tasks, how we can do that. But they, again, might have a kid at a table, and they'll have a finished basket where everything is going to move left to right all the time, and you put everything in the finished basket and as soon as you're finished you're up and out of there uh, I use a lot of that with kids but I can't always get to the five or six activity before a kid get, needs to get up and run <laughs> or get up and just get away from me for a minute and that's all right for us in early intervention we know that we have to modify nearly everything from the get-go so we'll talk about how uh, as we present the games or the boxes that we're going to look at we'll talk about how we need to keep that a pretty fast pace but when a kid is really ready to go we only push kids like one more one more one more we don't do when a kid is is there's six activities that you've planned for him and if he is just so done after activity two that's all right because you can let him get up and move around do something else like a social game because you're going to be working on social interaction anyway and then you're going to bring him back to that situation where you can do your boxes or your games again and so uh, take a look at the information in the autism workbook where they spell out or where I spell out all of their requirements just so that you know that that that's the foundation uh, for their their approach so that you can see all those things and then you'll understand how these modifications and tweaks might help you or may not be as successful for the child that you're working with. But I wanted to let you know that that information is there but we're not going to go through that per se because we're going to talk about how I use TEACH and how I found structured teaching to be so beneficial and a really big part of a kid's treatment plan even if we're not looking at the whole entire system like they had intended. So there are three specific types of things that we can do with structured teaching when we're looking at how do we design these tasks and how do we pick these tasks and let me just say if you if this is brand new to you and you've never done any research on structured teaching you've never read the teach materials please do that after the show so that you get an overall picture of how the system is supposed to look and then you'll be able to decide how you can make it work in your uh, particular situation for the child that you're seeing but when I think about using structured teaching I think there are three ways or three kinds of uh, materials that I can use. I can either get commercial sets, which I've got a great uh, company that I've used for that, had had so much luck with that, but there's, there are other, uh, other organizations, and when you do your internet searches about this, you'll certainly see those, but you can buy some commercial things that are already pre-done. On Teachers Pay Teachers, there's some structured teaching activities that you can get that are already uh, pre-made, and certainly uh, Pinterest has tons of ideas, and that's our second category here, homemade activities. So things that you can make or things that you can put together with existing activities, and I'm going to show you some of those things today. And then thirdly, it would just be how do we use traditional tools? within this uh, structured teaching method and there are tons of things that you can do with that too so I wanted to talk about the three ways or the three uh, 
kinds of structured teaching activities that I use and let you know what your options are. And I'm going to show you some of these things, but before we get to those things, I want to talk about kind of the the overall idea so you'll get some uh, more direction before we look at specific activities. So with commercial options, my very favorite set is from shoeboxtasks.com. Let me make sure I'm saying that right. Yeah, shoeboxtasks.com. And they have a set of 16 basic curriculum boxes. And again, we're gonna do some demo later, but I want you to see this right now. They come in with these white boxes and all the tasks are ready to go. And so it's just been a really good option for me. It's kind of pricey. Uh, Johnny, my husband, the other half of Teach Me To Talk, uh, bought this set for me for Valentine's Day in 2016. And while it's not something I use every day, I love it because when I need it with a kid, it is ready to go. Or when I think, oh, I don't know about structured teaching. I don't, I don't know if this kid's ready for that. I don't know if this kid needs that yet. But I always have in the back of my mind, boy, I have those boxes and I can go get those. And again, they're all organized. And what I like about that set is I can look at a task and think, okay, you know, this is box number four. So this should be, you know, move, moving on up. It's not box one or two. A kid has acquired some skills before he gets there. But then I can take this this idea with what am I doing in this toy? What is this activity? And do I have a toy that would be similar to this? And so I think, well, this is a put it in activity. So if a kid does well with this activity, I'm going to look for some toys that he can uh, generalize that skill to. And so that's why I love teach. And that's why I've loved even these commercial sets because I can look at the set and then analyze what skill does a kid need to do that? What has he learned? What has he practiced? Or what does he not know how to do yet? What what seems to be uh, hard for him here? And so just the analysis piece is the best thing that we can do with structured teaching because it really helps us uh, isolate what a kid is having difficulty with. And we can see, is this fine motor? Is it because he can't really use his hands? Is this motor planning? Is this a weakness issue? Do I need to have OT or PT taking a look at this and helping me with this or talking with parents about this? Is this a cognitive thing? He just can't remember what to do. I've shown him once, but he just, he doesn't, he's not remembering. He's not, he's not planning his little movements with his body. This has a cognitive component and a motor component. Or is this just an attention thing? If I keep this going really fast paced and I'm always right there giving him the next box and getting him ready for the next thing, can he do it then? Oh, okay. Well, that means that when we play, I need to present toys in that way. I need to be looking at how structured I can be is do I need to just have one toy here at a time and then we play with it get it done and then move it right along and so you can get so much good information with this analysis piece and so no matter what you use whether it be this commercial set or the homemade options or even looking at even starting with the traditional toys doing your analysis with okay this is this toy and this works with this kid because he has this skill this skill and this skill and then how can I generalize this to other toys what are some other similar toys that he might like and that is so important for kids with autism because remember we already talked about their need for things that are familiar and they're things that are highly predictable and highly structured. And so when we do something like take a structured teaching task and we say, oh, this is what a kid learned in this activity and this is now what he knows and what I can take and, and kind of assess to see if he's really 
mastered that skill. I'm going to see if we can generalize this to another toy or even another, uh, just a little higher level structure teaching activity. So that's what I loved about the commercial options because that's all done for me. The thinking, <laughs> somebody already did it and it's already laid out for me. But then I've got to take it a step further and then really use that and analyze that information to be able to know where a kid can go after that. So the tasks that you're going to be looking at with the, the first set that I think they have 32 boxes in the entire set, but the first little basic curriculum set there with shoebox tasks, it consists of put-in tasks, tasks that require greater finger dexterity dexterity and hand coordination, so that would be the fine motor skills, tasks that teach one-to-one -one correspondence, which is so important with math and with literacy and with all those higher level academic skills that we want kids learning by the time they're in preschool and kindergarten. Uh, pull apart tasks and then put in tasks. So something before I get to the put in, I've got to do something to it first and then put it in. And that is uh, a really, really common theme with toys. And so again, this is something that as a therapist if you've not thought about this our friends that are OTs or maybe even our friends that are developmental therapists might have thought about these things a little more than we have as SLPs and so thinking about what the motor components are with the toy and then how can I again bump it up just to make it a little bit more challenging a little bit more difficult so that I can get that cognition moving along and, and again use his fine motor skills and compensate when a kid has an issue with uh, fine motor coordination so that's certainly something that we need to be doing too other things that we teach uh, with the commercial uh, set from Shoebox Task, stacking, sorting, all of those preschool skills that we know kids need for both math, literacy, science, any other uh, academic area or a main curriculum area that they're going to learn, matching by color and by size, and then again, some motivational tasks that build that attention and participation. So super, super option. That uh, treatment approach or this this particular way to do structured teaching, again, is a good option for you if you have more money than time. <laughs> and so if you're looking at this and thinking, these ideas are so great and I know they're so simple, but can I just buy the set? Can, is that, you know, is that an option? Yeah. And it's not just from the, the company that I mentioned too. And again, I have no affiliation with them. I get no no perks at all. They have no idea who I am or anything. And so I don't have a relationship with them. So uh, you can you can just go find your own uh, commercial option there. And I've, I've given you some places for that too. But again, super, super way. Now the next thing that we can do, and, and I'm going to show you some more of these in a minute. I just kind of want to introduce you to what these options are. And then we'll talk about how we move through this and how we implement this approach during a treatment session. But for the next, if we're not going to do a commercial option, there's so many homemade options. And that's the next kind of structured teaching that we can talk about. And so I talked about the internet searches and the blog searches and maybe being on Pinterest or whatever you want to do. But there, the internet is loaded with ideas for structured teaching. So do some searches there because you're going to be able to come up with your, your own ideas for activities based on something that you see. Uh, other people do. In so many cases, we can take really traditional uh, toys, which is our third category here, and just present them differently. So a really simple toy like these pop beads, and lots of 
Uh, this is a, lots of families give these to uh, their babies, and it's just a really common, familiar toy. But again, to make this a structured teaching activity, we're going to modify it so that we give it an end and we give it a real purpose here. And so this is what we're talking about with traditional toys is that we would uh, take something, but again, make it a little more structured so that a kid with autism or any other developmental difference that might respond uh, to this uh, highly structured kind of teaching uh, methodologies. I've used structured teaching with kids that just have significant uh, neurological differences so that we are kids with Down syndrome, kids with, again, other kinds of cognitive challenges that they may have just had another kind of syndrome or or another kind of just multiple medical diagnoses, even even something like cerebral palsy, where we there we know there's a motor component, there may or may not be a cognitive component, but we know that we presenting tasks in this way, it's going to make it easier for kids to learn how to play. And so, what we're talking about doing with traditional toys is usually a technique that I call deconstruction. I don't know what other people call it, but I call it deconstruction. And this is really based on what we've learned about backward chaining, which is a neurological. Uh, treatment approach where we don't teach activities or what we want someone to learn from the beginning we start teaching it from the end and then we backward chain until we get all the way to the beginning and so the person is learning how to do the last steps first and so that certainly is a, a technique that we're going to use a lot uh, when we're looking at structured teaching and especially when we're looking at how do we present traditional toys in a way that a kid will be able to play with them when uh, just our our attempts before have been unsuccessful. So to make an activity a structured teaching task, we, we want to give it, like we talked about before, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we want kids to see it's, it's a closed-end task, meaning that there's usually one thing, one or two little steps, and then they're completely finished with that task. So for something like... Uh, these pot beads we may not even have this whole string we may just start with five and when we put our container down in front of the child and we just say something like pull in and then we give him an opportunity to do it and we give him the whole string of pot beads and his only thing we want him to do is pull it apart and put it in pull it apart and put it in pull it apart and put it in and so that was our structured teaching task now for some of you you may be thinking that's it yeah that's it <laughs> for kids who can't play yet and again we're not going to say won't play because we're thinking about this not as a behavioral choice they just don't have the skills or they don't have the ability to sit they don't have the ability to want to interact with you and listen to you as you explain what to do so we've got to meet them where they are and get them started and so uh, this kind of task at the beginning is, let me just say, don't diminish the importance of this because until you've had a kid who can't do it, you don't realize how some of these basic skills we really do have to teach kids. They don't just naturally acquire them. And so that's what we're talking about with uh, structured teaching here and with using some of these homemade activities. So those are our, those are our three things we're going to talk about, the commercial sets, the homemade activities and then using traditional toys. And so uh, let's talk about how we use these and let me show you some more of examples of what we do with this because I really want you to be able to take these activities even today and start to think about how can I modify some of the things that I'm already doing. 
what can I introduce new that might make it easier for this child to uh, learn how to play with toys? And so again, if we, I'm gonna start with these commercial options and then just kind of talk through how I use these. And I started this a little bit, but I'm gonna do it, I wanna be a little bit more purposeful. So I'll leave you the, with a good idea of how to implement these strategies and get started. All right, so let's take a look at these boxes that I mentioned. This is from Shoebox Task, and I wanted to just tell you quickly how you would set this up in a set in a session. So the Teach People recommend that you start with five or six boxes. I've hardly found a child that I could start with five or six boxes with. <laughs> working in early intervention or working with really young preschoolers who have maybe just transitioned, who are uh, to uh, a public school program. So kids who are just maybe three, maybe turning four, but I've still not found a kid that I could do that many boxes with who's truly a candidate for this program. I probably have those kids who would be able to move through five or six boxes. I probably have them already playing with traditional toys. <laughs> so that may not be, that may be the difference there, but my point is you want to just do what a kid can do. And so these first three or four boxes are what I present at the beginning. And you can see we talked about all the tasks at the beginning with structured teaching, whether you are doing your homemade versions or a commercially available option, are going to start with the put in or take it off or take it apart. And so that's certainly what's happening here. And so we just have a container with a hole or a, a block shaped, a square container or a square hole here so that a child is just supposed to pull it off the Velcro and put it in uh, the container. And so certainly you get them, you, you don't over model and you don't over teach when you're doing this. You would say something like, wow, look, see, in, and just again, keep it so simple. Talking can actually drive lots of kids away from you <laughs> when they are learning how to pay attention, when that has been difficult for them. And so lots of times the first recommendation I make to a chatty therapist or parent is be quiet. <laughs> Try to limit what you're saying because you may be overstimulating that child, not in the sense that he's going to be all out of control and running around the room and biting you and hitting you. And certainly when you see that, you always want to pull back your words and you always want to pull back to anything that may be overloading him, especially auditorily. But at the same time, You've got to tell a kid what to do, and we are speech pathologists, so we don't want this to be completely devoid of language, although I think the structured teaching people are okay with that, especially at the beginning, <laughs> because they feel like we're going to use this uh, to teach a kid to complete a task, which again is a prerequisite skill that so many kids with developmental differences, not just autism, but kids with all kinds of learning differences have. But for this uh, toy you can see, or this game, this box, is uh, really just that simple, pull it off and put it in. I found that lots of kids like this because of the Velcro, and then you think, oh, he needs something that's just a tiny bit of a challenge, but not so much of a challenge that it drives him away. And again, this is why the analysis part of using structured teaching is so beneficial, and this is what I hope that I leave you with today from this show, is looking at why these activities work, and then how can we use that to help a child move on to other things. All right, so we presented this first box. We're just going to show it to him. Remember, we're going to keep our words really simple. We're not going to over-talk. We're not going to over-model. If he doesn't start to do the activity on his own, you model it a couple of times and he doesn't, do some really simple hand over hand. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't alert him to the fact that you are going to touch him and all. Don't do all that. Just 
grab his hand and help him put it in and say yay or in or whatever you wanted to say there. If you feel like your language is making it worse, don't even talk at the beginning. Just help him learn how to do it. As soon as he's finished with this first task, move on to the next task. Now, some therapists will say, what if he wants to do it again? Shouldn't I let him do it again? Shouldn't I follow this child's lead? Yes, but wait till you have traditional toys. <laughs> when you are starting with a commercial set like this, or even just your homemade options or your traditional toys that you're going to modify, you are teaching them to really get through the task, to complete the whole thing, not to run off before you're finished and so for some kids again they have the opposite problem with play they want it they want to stay with it and do it over and over and over so they're so repetitive with it don't get stuck with that with the kid would teach move them through usually the kids that you were using the focus with usually are the busier kids with the shorter attention span so I may be making a little bit more bigger deal about this than it really is in real life <laughs> you may not ever have this problem but if you have a kid who wants to do something over and over just look at what that task is why does he like that what toys can I introduce where he can have that that repetition and that mastery and we're going to let him do that we're just not going to let him do it in the context of this task because we want him moving quickly and getting through uh, the intended activities that we wanted here. So when he's, as soon as he's finished with the first one, even if he didn't do it great, move right along. Move right along to that next set and keep it really going. This is a similar task here. You can see it bumps up just a little bit in complexity. We're using the same little blocks here. But now the container is a little has a little more resistance, so the child is going to have to try a little harder. And so sometimes what I mentioned before about you might recognize with the first box, boy, he really liked pulling that Velcro off. And with this box, you might say, he really likes it when he has to push that in, when he has to work it in a little bit. And so those are things that you're going to know after, after you've... Uh, played with this with him after you've let him do this series of boxes so again you're going to move him through you're just going to say in you're going to help him do it if he doesn't stay on task just keep him moving through for some kids you know most of these have five or six one two three four five six these six blocks here some kids you may have to even limit that where you are just presenting three or four blocks the first couple of times just to get him through the boxes and then you'll gradually increase the number of blocks that you would add. So you can do some modifications even within a commercially uh, available or commercially purchased system there. Okay this is box number three and here you can see that you're just using coins. Again this is a put-in task but can you see at the beginning we had the block uh, shaped hole that no resistance and then we had a little x so the child had to have a little more fine motor coordination a little better visual eye coordination to get the block to go into the x and push it through now we're even harder we bumped up to a coin size slot and so that's what we wanted to do is stick with it and look there are lots more uh coins lots more materials for a child to manipulate here so this is a little harder he's going to have to stay with this activity a little bit longer and so again another great option there and so you want to move through the boxes and when you see that a child has completed the boxes fairly quickly you know oh he's ready for the next set or he's ready to move on and again the teach people would get you to move all the way through 
the set of toys and know that you're working on different skills and you're building longer attention span and all of that. Again, what I like to do with this is look at the components that have, we've used for play and then I think, what can I do? How can I analyze this and move this along uh, to another toy? So now that's what I want to do is show you how to do analysis with this kind of activity. Before we move on, I want to tell you a couple of things that I forgot that are going to make it easier for you. Think about your environment when you are presenting these structured teaching activities. So if you are a therapist going into a family's home, you may not know what you're going to have to work with before you get there, but hopefully you're going to be having some of these conversations <laughs> before you come in and uh, uh, start to work with the child. So you'll know is my best option going to be a child-sized table and chairs? Would that be better for this kid? Some therapists or parents naturally think, well, I'm just going to put them in the high chair. I don't like the high chair for this kind of activity because your space is limited just there on the tray. I mean, it does provide a visual boundary, and some kids do respond so well to the boundary of being in the high chair and being belted in because they don't know where their little bodies are in space. They may be kids who have, again, gross motor or uh, muscle tone differences that make that a lot harder for them. But generally, I don't like using the high chair because I'm belting a kid in and I'm restraining him. And I just don't want to feel like that. I want this to be this to be his opportunity to participate with me. Not that I've made him do a part of that. But there are some things that you can do that will, again, make it easier for you to contain him and keep him with you without belting him in. So I like to do a lot of these teach activities at a coffee table in a family's home. So I'm sitting on the floor and the child is standing and we put the box or the activity on top of the table and then I can get these ready and usually a mom is with me and if you have taken my course is it autism and done the second part of that the treatment part I have so many great clips of a little boy named Drew that I use this strategy with and you can see his mom there with me and sometimes mom is the primary uh, helper with the teach activities and sometimes I am but we're both right there and we have the activities just ready to present so we just do them pretty quickly one right after another and when we finish with two boxes or four boxes or six boxes how many of our activities we have then he moves on to do something else so I wanted to talk about the environmental tweaks there what do you do if a kid won't stand beside you at a table and stay with you move the table <laughs> get the table where he against a wall where he's between the wall and the table so that you can limit it. If you think that's too much, Laura, I'm not going to go in and reorganize a family's whole home. Do some things with your own body. So you might sit on the opposite side of him and use your arms, your legs to kind of keep him there. Not where you're just like, ah, you're not going anywhere, but you're just going to do it casually or naturally during the task so that when he starts to get a little fidgety like he's going to run away, you just get your arm right there where he can't quite leave yet. And you say, come on, put it in. One more, one more. And you're giving him, again, the auditory cues. You're keeping it fun with your voice. You're not being too authoritative or punitive. You know, you must stay here and do the boxes. You're just keeping it real fun and real light. And again, if you've planned for him to do four boxes and he can only do two, that's okay. Let him do it. Don't create a power struggle. As soon as you get finished with the next box so that he's really completed an activity, don't let him leave in the middle. But when he's finished with that, even if you have to help him get finished, let him go do something else like we talked about, a social game where you're already working on that social interaction piece or something else that you're working on. Maybe you're doing packs 
where he's trading for snacks. You go do something else. It might be that you're going to go do a big gross motor activity. You might go jump on the couch or jump on the trampoline. Or if you are in your therapy room, you might go to another part of your room and do something different. And then you're going to come right back and start over. Uh, present the whole little series of boxes again. Even if he only got through two boxes, start with box one again and do box one, box two. This time, hopefully you can get him through that third box. But again, you want to think about this as a work segment or a play segment. And now we're ready to move on and talk about the analysis that you do after uh, that initial playtime. So let's talk about this analysis piece. So remember how I said my most beneficial use for structured teaching tasks or the teach activities would be to take what a kid is doing in that activity and think, how can I generalize this to a regular toy? And so we don't do this at the very beginning. We just start doing the analysis. And then a lot of times within just a few sessions, I'm thinking, gosh, the kid, he just really flew through those six boxes. So what can I do? Is is he ready to move on to this next set or should I just go ahead and move on to some traditional toys and see what we get and that's what I do a lot and and a lot of times I'm still surprised when we just start with this kind of focused structured teaching with how well the results are and then how quickly we can move on to the other task and then sometimes I, I just try to say should I have just started with the play task at the beginning and then I realized no it was the structured teaching that made this easier we tried the play task we tried those toys that didn't work it really was this focused breaking down of these individual skills that made this easier for this child and now he's developmentally ready to transition so let's talk about this so with the task that we talked about, I think this is box number two, uh, a put-in task. So we look at this. Okay, he's done this little box with me several times. His, the, the premise, the goal of this activity is he's taking the block and he's pushing it in the hole. And he's doing that again. He's done it a lot. He's good at it. So then I go look through my toys or the family's toys and I say, how can I find something that mimics this skill that he just learned. And so then you might say, well, look at the ball toy here. Now, the ball toy is more complicated, obviously, than putting the blocks from one bin into another, but it's still got the same put-in component. And so for some of these kids like this, we you introduce this with the balls, and then you might your next little thing might be adding this that you're going to push. You know, that's going to be the that's going to be the different thing. He had a push here to get it to go in. Well, now you've added a different visual component. He can see what's happening. Some kids are then going to be ready for you to go ahead and add the tool. Some are not. When you start getting them to. Add, uh, then wanting them to hit the ball with the hammer, you're going to realize some kids can do it, some kids can't. What is it about the hammer? Some kids will start to self-stem with the hammer. You know, then they're just going to be all about looking at the hammer or holding or hoarding the hammer. And so you have to start thinking, you know, that's why he's not able to play with his toy yet. It's not that he won't play with any toys. He just doesn't have these individual skills or these individual components. And that's that's what teach is so great about for me or has been for me in my practice is really looking at this skill. I've taught him how to do it. Now let's figure out how to transition that. So we've had an example here with the ball toy. And then we can use the same example with uh, the coin slots that I just showed you with this box. So then we would think, oh yes, I know what I can do. I can move on to this toy. 
or maybe we think, oh, let's try a different kind of ball toy here. Maybe, maybe it is looking at that. Maybe he's got the ball component. It's uh, or the put it in component. Let's try it with a different kind of ball toy here. And so you can certainly look at that. But that what I what I'm trying to get you to do is analyze. Look at. What was he able to do in the context of this structure teaching activity? And then how can I move this on? How can I make this work with familiar toys? So now what I want to do is take you and walk you through a set of five or six homemade activities and talk about how you can do this at home today <laughs> and learn how to use uh, this method to teach children the skills that they need to be able to play with traditional toys. So you can find this information on your handout for today's show. So this is show number 414. And if you'll look at the description below, or if you're listening on your podcast app, you'll just need to go to Teach Me to Talk and search for show 0414. And you'll pay the $5 to get your continuing education credit for this course if you're a therapist. But even if you're not, the handout is going to walk you through uh, taking these tasks, how you can just pull together these homemade activities, have these ready to go so that you can use with the one kid that you're working with if you're a parent or lots of kids who might need this in the future on your caseload. So let's just walk through some of these simple beginning play tasks. Now remember, I still want you doing your analysis with this, but this is how you get started in using structured teaching at home, uh, even if you're not going to buy some of those commercially available uh, pre-packaged sets. All right, so let's just talk about the first task that we're going to teach, which is put in. And remember with the the shoebox task, how that looked, we had a white rectangular shoebox and it had this strip of Velcro and we had the little blocks and the blocks had the Velcro dot on the bottom and then there was a, a container there with a lid that had the square opening for that block. So we think, okay, I can make that exact set or <laughs> I can look for something that I already have around the house that may work. And I think these diaper wipe boxes are perfect uh, for this. So uh, I like the ones that have the little squishy top. I think these are Huggies, maybe. Maybe you can probably see it. But it has a little squishy right there. And again, this uh, to me uh, mimics the little X that we had in the set that I showed you earlier because the kid has a little bit of resistance here to push it in. If a kid has difficulty with that, I help them find motor-wise. Sometimes if a kid has lots of difficulty, I think, oh, that opening's too small. He just can't do it with his little hands, his strength or his coordination or whatever it happens to be. So just open the top. And again, your task, you've got them sitting there. You might even make uh, the beginning of this task a little more or structure too by putting all of the blocks that he needs to put in his container in one container and what is his task is just to sit with you or stand with you move from left to right take the block put it in take the block put it in and when he's finished we're going to quickly move on to the next task so that was a put-in task what I like to do is stay at this put-in task level for a while so I'll make several activities that are put in tasks. So I like this one. It's so simple. It's just, I think it was probably a drink, some kind of drink container. We drilled a hole in the top and I've got some straws here and we're just going to put them in. And again, this, this is a little more difficult because you're, 
uh, hole is smaller, so he's going to have to have a little bit more aim. The resistance, uh, because the drill, is, the hole is not perfectly smooth, the straw may catch a little bit. The child may have to push it down a little. You can show him how to do that or even take the straw and push another one through. If he doesn't stay with it, usually you haven't made it exciting enough for him to stay with. And so you're going to want to look at, oh, that just didn't hold his attention. What can I What can I try next? And again, sometimes it's just that he a child knows that you want him to finish. So just that you've given him four or five at the beginning, he knows when he's done those four, it's time to move on to another task and he doesn't see that you have 64 straw pieces there. You've just got a few. So the more, for some kids, the more quickly they can get it done, the better. I'm okay with that, especially at the beginning, because usually, remember what we're working on here is task completion and attention to task. And if he wants to stay focused enough to get it done, get it done fast and then move on, that's fine with me. I mean, how many tasks during your day do you want to get done quickly? You know, dishes, laundry, that kind of thing. Math sheets, certainly for older kids so it's okay if a kid starts to want to pick up the pace and I kind of like that because I think it keeps them with me they are not bored when they are moving along quickly and again I feel like they're just getting enough repetition to really attain some mastery they've practiced enough to get really good at it so look at some other kinds of options that you can do for put in uh, this is just a container and I've actually used this one a lot for color matching which is a higher level skill but sometimes you'll get here and you realize a kid can do it and you didn't even know and so don't make it too complicated at the beginning. When you first start with this, you really do just want to keep it, okay, my only goal here is he's got to put it in. He has to put in his 10 pom-poms or how many ever you have uh, laid out. And then you can move on to make it uh, more complex, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But at the beginning, you're just going to want to come up with enough activities to keep him with you. And again, for some kids having to push this through, they're practicing isolating their index finger. So that helps with pointing with our kids who haven't really learned how to do that yet. This is another way to really target that all-important skill too. And you can see here, I like this uh, activity with pipe cleaners. We've just drilled some holes here in the top. And you can do this a couple of ways. You can work on put in which again, you're threading the pipe cleaner all the way through and it takes some staying with it uh, for a toddler. You might even teach them how to hold and stabilize the container with their other hand as they push through. Some kids, um, this is too hard for. You're gonna have to get your pipe cleaners in there and let them pull this through. So this would be a takeout activity. But that's one of the basic things that we talked about, a put-in or a takeout activity. All right, let's move on to the next one. I showed you this activity before, but this is a great one if you're putting together your own structured teaching kit. But the pop beads are fantastic for this. And so because why the kid is gonna put in, but he's also gonna do something else, which is pull apart. And lots of kids have trouble with bilateral coordination. This is kind of a motor planning thing too. And so teaching them how to stand and pull this apart and put it in pull it apart and put it in. If a kid does that three or four really well, next time you do the activity, not 
not while you're doing it in the middle of it. Don't, don't make it harder as you go. But the next time you might start out with a longer string of pot beads and see, can he stay with it? And here you may not be working on the physical activity. A child may certainly have the skills to be able to pull this apart and put it in, but it might be the attention. Can he stay with you for eight? Can he stay with you for 10 to get those pulled apart, put in that activity? And then remember, it's not just that we want him to do this and then move on. We wanted to do this plus a few other little activities. So it's going to be part of your uh, part of your little sequence that you're doing. Let me talk to you about some other things that you think about as you are designing your activities. You may think about, oh, he loves those pot beads, so maybe I should start with those pot beads to get him involved. That's a good thing to do. For some kids, it might be that you save the pot beads for the third activity because they'll stay with you for the first couple and hang with you through that, but then if they see that their favorite activity is coming up, then they'll stay with you even longer. And again, that might take a kid who's a little bit older, a three-year-old or a four-year-old to really be able to think through that, that delayed gratification piece. But at the same time, you do want to think about where do I where do I place these activities when I'm presenting them to him? If I go with something he loves at the beginning, then is he just done and he runs away? Should I stay with things that are a little more challenging at the beginning so that he stays with me? And then when I see that he's about to leave, then I present the one that he really, really likes. And again, this is timing. You've got to really get good at knowing uh, with, when I'm saying when a kid is about to leave, you don't wait until he's two feet away from you to try to pull him back. You watch him. You see that he's starting to try to move back or or he's just getting a little more squirmy. And that's when you finish up what the activity that you're doing. You get through it and then you present the one that he likes. So think about using that and think about how you can use the, all that clinical judgment that you've acquired. How can you use that to really keep him participating and keep him going? And then not only do you have to think about it as a therapist, You've got to teach a parent how to do it. So that might be something that you're doing too is you're introducing structured teaching and you're saying, okay, we want some put-in activities and he really likes that pop beat activity. So let's think about if we're going to put that at the end, if we're going to make this activity number four for him when he's only been able to do one or two for us, will that keep him hanging in there? And again, it's not that you're saying, oh, look, you get to do pop beats if you do this. Some kids can handle that, but most of them can't. What you're going to do is just pick three or four fast activities to present first. You know, two or three pom-poms, three or four little straws, two or three little pipe cleaners, and then move on to the pot beads. And the next time you'll add more pom-poms, you'll add more pipe, one or two more pipe cleaners, and then move on to more of the pot beads. So just think about how you can organize those activities and keep those kinds of things going. Now I want to move through some of these other skill-based tasks so that you can see what we're teaching a child and then again think about how you can use that activity with more traditional toys or other academic kinds of activities. One thing that we like to introduce with structured teaching is two-way sorting. So what does that mean? It means that I'm going to decide if I have two sets of objects, I'm going to group them together and decide where they go. So I might do something with some containers and use bigger things than I have right now. I just pick small things because we have a, a small little space here for the camera shot, but pick some containers. And again, you're going to give them a set of two different items, so balls and blocks, and you're just going to model balls and blocks. 
What you might do too is already put one of each in the container so he can see really quickly what the purpose of the task is without you having to over explain it. And so then you have a ball and you just model ball, putting it with the balls. Block, 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 block. And again, don't sit and do this for six turns like I just did. You'll just want to do it for a turn or two. And most kids will catch on really quickly. If they don't catch on, you'll know, gosh, this is a cognitive component. He's not understanding that that he's what he's doing here. He's not understanding matching. And so you'll know that and you'll know, wow, we've got to spend a lot of time with him understanding that the the blocks go in this one and the balls go here. You'll know this kid is not ready for puzzles. He he can't match my objects. So no way can he match my pictures yet. And it's just going to give you such good information about a child. And if you are a therapist, I hope you're already thinking in this way. I bet you are. But if you're not, you may have gotten out of the habit of thinking critically. You're just, you're just going through your checklist or going through your approach or whatever. And that is not what I am about at Teach Me To Talk at all. I want to teach you how to think. I want to teach you how to take these ideas and then make them your own. And, and more importantly, take these ideas and use them to work with the children that you are working with to get better results. So two-way sorting is another really, really important task that you can work on all the time. Parents can work on this at home. You can say something like, uh, let, let's think of let's think of some ways that you can work on some two-way sorting. And so I've had kids sort spoons versus forks when their mom is unloading the dishwasher, or when they're doing laundry, they're going to sort socks versus shirts. Those kinds of things. Now, kids with autism, a lot of them are really drawn to these activities. So if you've not done some of this before, this may kind of be out there for you as an SLP, and you're thinking that's really a cognitive task. Why am I working on that? Because children rely on their underlying cognitive skills to learn language. And so when they can't sort and match and do some of these nonverbal cognitive things, they're they're not going to be symbolic thinkers yet. They've got to learn how to think like this first. And so that's why we work on this. And it's always to get to words. It's always to get to language development and academic success. But you've got to really think about, again, these prerequisite skills and these break these skills down in these smaller components so that we can really teach them and kids can really learn them. All right, so let's move on. We talked about two-way sorting. Another really popular skill here, again, when we're going to talk about uh, just the fine motor component is that kids have flexibility. And so uh, another fun thing that uh, when you start looking at blogs and start looking at the teach materials and people that do this approach is their overall uh, methodology. Another thing that they work on and think about is flexibility during play. So can I take the clothespins off? And so this is kind of a challenge to even fine motor wise because the child has to learn how to squeeze the tip and then you want him to put it in the container to kind of end it. You don't want him just sitting there stemming, squeezing, squeezing the clothespins just for, again, that visual bump that he might get. You want him to complete the task. So what do you do if a kid can't do that? You modify it. You think, well, he can't open and close those clothespins, so let me just try the clothespins that he can slide on. And so that's why it's so important for you as a therapist to have already planned these activities and already have some materials there where you are 
uh, you have them available. You're not having to say to mom, oh, that didn't work. I, I wish that I'd thought ahead and brought something different or suggested something different to you. You've got to kind of plan this ahead. So that's why I wanted to introduce these activities so that you can make your own little set and you can be completely ready. All right, so clothespins were a good one for that. Not only like we talked about for fine motor, uh, but you'll also get some information just about their cognition with, with how they can figure out how to do that. Can they imitate that uh, higher level little, uh, I'm going to do two steps here. I'm going to squeeze this, pull it up, and even three, I'm going to then put it in the container. So that's a good one. Another skill that lots of, uh, if you'll start to look at blogs with structural teaching, another skill that they uh, emphasize and just for academics in general would be color matching. And so you can certainly do this with uh, the little sets that you can buy. Don't start out with too many options at the beginning even though you have five cups here for color matching you'll just want to present a couple at the beginning and go really really fast when you're doing this with the child so that they only have two uh, of the matching bears out but really really fast so that they don't get bogged down in all this and again don't worry about teaching the language part that's going to come but if you're just matching and you're just saying blue green and again let's pretend like blue Oh, green. That might be the only language that you do. If a kid is making an incorrect choice, he's trying to put the yellow in the green, uh, do things rather than overcorrecting him and saying no, which can drive a child away. Uh, you'll just cover up the incorrect choice. So if he's if, if he's trying to put the blue bear in the green one, you might just slide it away and just tap and point to the blue. And again, you don't have to do a lot of over-explaining with, no, that doesn't match. I want you to match. I want you to match. I want you to put the blue bear in the blue cup. We have to match blue and blue. Don't do all that. There is time for teaching with language, but when we're doing structured teaching at the beginning, you want to be simple and you don't want to drive kids away while you're doing this. Now another, uh, so, so some kids can start out with the cups and or whatever set you already have for color matching but a lot of times i found just little lego matching is better because you've given a kid again something else to do and so you start out with just two little colors and then you bump a child up when he's ready when he can stack three or four of each color then you might think, oh, I'm going to bump them up a little bit and not in the same activity. But the next time that you present your uh, blocks here, and let me just do it like I would really do it because I don't want you to get in the habit of just doing what I'm doing here and thinking this is okay. You would, you would already have your blue and your green set up. You might even have, if you're using smaller Legos or Duplos, those little mats that come with those sets so that you can attach the blocks and they are firmly right there. This, this might be too much for some kids. If there's not stability, they may just want to leave. But you're just going to, again, present it where the, they uh, are using containers to really make this more structured. And so you've got your two options, your two color options right there. And then you've got your blocks over in the other container where he can just pick one and then match it and put it right on. And this is what's gonna make it more structured. And again, you don't have to have a finished box or a container for him to put this in at the end. His, his end products are his towers here. And so if he does this pretty well, the next, time you do it, what changes do you need to make? Well, you're going to need a bigger container <laughs> because you could barely keep the eight 
uh, blocks that you had in this one, you need to prepare for a bigger container because this time I'm going to introduce a third color. And so then you have that there. And remember, don't get in the habit of over-talking and over-explaining. If that is you as a therapist and you want to over-talk and over-explain, do that to the mom. <laughs> don't do that to the kid. Keep it moving pretty quickly. So those tasks, put in, take off, pull apart, two-way sorting, block stacking, and then your clothespins on a coffee can. Oh. Did I already say that one? Close pins on a coffee can and the color matching. You've already done seven homemade structured teaching tasks. So if you put this kit together, you've got a good start with the kit. And then remember, you're not just going to say, yay, he learned how to do this. You're going to take those skills. What did he learn? What can he do now as a play skill? And I'm going to match that to a traditional toy. And for some kids... You have the toy ready to go, like immediately, so that you can introduce it. But for some kids, uh, you can just think, okay, he learned all this this session. Next time, we're going to bump him up to this toy. And so you may keep using teach kind of as your uh, introductory activity for that, but then know I'm going to move him on, and next session we're doing this, and next session we're doing this. And, okay, well, that didn't go well. He's not ready for that toy yet. I tried the toy with him, but he didn't have as much success with that, so what would you do? You would pull it back, and you would practice with your homemade activities or with your commercial set a little longer because he hasn't mastered it. He couldn't generalize it, so you've got to practice that skill again. So that's what's so important about using structured teaching. It's not just that I've taught a kid how to do this within this task. It's that I've really use the information I've taught him this skill and then I've used that information to help him move on up that development ladder and get to playing with some more traditional toys. Now we're going to reset and when I come back I'm going to show you how to do deconstruction with traditional toys so that you can really really help a kid move on. Now we're going to talk about how to use common toys with structured teaching. And remember what we said about that. We're just going to present the toy in a different way that's going to make it less challenging for that child to participate. So a lot of times it's that the child doesn't really understand what to do with the toy. So we're going to start with taking the toy apart rather than putting it together. We're going to do backward chaining and start at the end rather than at the beginning. And to use this with familiar toys, the main thing that you need to to do for structured teaching is to provide another container so that the child has an end to that activity. So let's think about how we can do this with the variety of toys and then think about too that next step how can we move on. So let's just start with potato heads. So for a, a toy like potato heads what do you traditionally want a child to do? You think about him what? Constructing or putting the pieces in. Well, for this kind of kid who can't do that yet, who's not there yet, and so if you have a kid who is already playing with a toy correctly, you're not going to use this. You're just going to use this with the kids who aren't doing it, but you're going to think about deconstruction. So you're going to uh, get your container, whatever it happens to be, open the top, the entire container of your white box, or you can use the little... Uh, opening here and some kids really like learning how to open that by themselves to push and then their next part is they take the pieces off and so for potato head instead of putting his pieces on you're just letting the child take the piece off put it in the box don't over talk like we talked about it just pull it out you know nose off nose in eyes in that's what you want to do during this and for kids remember what I said if the 
really overstimulates them for you to talk, don't talk during this. Just let them finish their task and move on to the next thing. So that was potato heads. Let's think about something like this uh, little hedgehog toy. So cute. I just love it. We do a lot of things with this toy, but if kids aren't learning how to put the pegs in at the beginning, think I'm going to do deconstruction. I'm going to let them take the pegs out. And so get yourself a container, even if it's a bowl or an Amazon box, just whatever you have available and just set it up. Always think about going left to right so that the child that you're working with, he, he's taking materials from the left and placing them on the right. That gets children ready to write left to right, to read left to right. Uh, so it's certainly something that we can start working on now with children. But uh, having them take the pegs out and then put them in a container and then you're finished. You move on to the next activity. Let's talk about something like puzzles. Again, remember before we said when kids can't uh, match, when we were doing that two-way sorting, how would they ever be ready for a puzzle? And sometimes we don't think about that. We don't think about all of the little skills that build and build and build and then we get to the puzzle all right so we've already kind of taken care of that you made sure that a child can match with objects before you're going to have them match pictures but another thing you can do with puzzles is instead of putting the pieces in have a child take the pieces out for deconstruction and remember you can do it on the table but it's going to be better if you use your uh, container like we talked about and have them put the puzzle pieces in the container after they've taken them out and this is such a relief for lots of kids who can't match or their fine motor control they just have such a hard time even if they have the cat on the right piece they're not quite sure how to slide it in there and you can continue to help them and coach them through that but the beauty of this at the beginning uh, is they're not going to be so frustrated because they're going to be able to pull their piece out and then move on and you can still do your language things you can still label and you know say cat meow meow oh kitty cat you know whatever you're doing for that language component but try to really limit that at the beginning so that you can get a child used to completing the task and used to finishing the play routine before you add your language component and then you'll be able to get that in there pretty quickly you won't have to withhold that forever and our our purpose is language teaching so you'll know that again you're going to get there just at the beginning you may not want to be as gung-ho so that you give the child time to process time to complete the activity time to really learn what he's doing without that extra layer of complication on there with your words all right so a ring stacker so we're talking about deconstruction so instead of putting the toys or the rings on what are we going to do we're taking the rings off we're going to use our container to put the pieces in but guess what the beauty of this is for so many kids after we do deconstruction just three or four sessions usually what do they start to do they get interested in constructing the toy and you don't have to do a lot with that other than just follow their natural cues so when you see a kid who's put all the pieces in the box a lot of times you're going to see them start to open and then on their own just take the pieces out and start to put that toy together so beautifully a lot more beautifully than they've ever done in any of your previous attempts so i am just so excited for you to try deconstruction if you've never done that it can be a game changer for a toddler who doesn't like to play with toys all right now remember what i said about analysis we're always looking at not just 
what a child is doing with that one toy, but how can I bump him up? How can I move him on? So I hope that in your practice as an SLP or whatever therapist you are, you have started acquiring different levels of toys. So like for uh, this toy, for this ring stacker, I have this basic set here, but then I also have a, a version that's a little more complicated. And so we know that when a kid deconstructs this uh, wooden ring stacker toy and then he starts to construct it, I look at what's my next uh, action. What's my next possibility here? And so I've got another toy ready to go. Where this one, of course, is going to be harder for him to do deconstruction because it's harder for him to pull this off. But lots of kids are going to be mesmerized by this spinning, you know, especially our little friends on the spectrum, and will want to stay with you. But this is what we think about and how we think about bumping them up to that next level with toys. All right, so I hope that I've given you some good ideas today for how to get started with structured teaching. If you've never done this before, what I would suggest now is to uh, rewind the video or the podcast if you're just listening on your podcast app or get the CE credit and get your hand out there and make yourself that little kit that we just reviewed in the previous segment. And then once you've made your kit, you've done some put-ins and some takeoffs and possibly some color matching, all those things that we just talked about. Then what I want you to do is take that list and look at your own toys or if you're working with a child look at the family's toys and say how can I move them on what's that next step guys if you're not doing that part you're not really doing structured teaching in the way that it's intended unless you're using it as the whole system and you're going to set it up where that's all a kid does and that's how he learns and if that's what you're doing that's fabulous but for us in early intervention this is our very best way of using structured teaching to take that opportunity to teach a kid the skills that he's missing, whether it be a fine motor component or a cognitive component. And again, remember that cognition includes attention. We're going to take that and then we're going to uh, bump it up. We're going to learn how to then take those skills and transition that to being able to play with familiar toys. And remember, why are we doing that? So that a kid can learn language and he can interact with his peers because he's doing something that all kids do. And don't miss the opportunities that we have to teach children language uh, by using toys. So structured teaching gets us there with kids who aren't uh, naturally learning how to play with toys on their own. So I hope this has given you some new ideas today. Be sure to check out the autism workbook and let me just say this is the end of this podcast series we've gotten to show 13 or 14 or whatever it is I just want to do a big clap that we've gotten through this series because it's been such a challenge uh, in this past year to do it but please take a look at autism workbook if you have not done that if you're a therapist this is such a fabulous tool for you and if you're a parent using this tool at home can really really help you get started or restarted if you need to work with your child and let me just take this opportunity to point out this last couple of pages this is i call it the autism workbook worksheet and that's where you're taking all of the strategies that we have reviewed in these last 13 shows and that you are looking at when the strategy is appropriate when it's not appropriate because goodness knows we don't want to waste time and do anything that we don't need to do and then you'll be able to decide is this a priority for me 
uh, now or later. And so then you can take this checklist and literally plan what you're going to do with the child for the next three months, the next six months. Some kids are going to be at this developmental level for a year or two working through this book. And you know what? That is okay. But this is a tool that you can use, and I hope that you'll take advantage of that. And you can find the link for that right there below uh, the post here on YouTube. Or if you're listening uh, in your podcast app, it's teachmetotalk.com and check out the autism workbook. All right, that is it for today and it for this series. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for the Autism Podcast series. And if you're a longtime podcast listener or watcher, I've got some new theme music, and I just love it, and I hope you do too. So listen to that on your way out. Thanks so much. Bye. (laughs) 